Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Lady Chatterley's Lover, Chapter 10, by D.H. Lawrence. Part 2. The next day, she did not go to the wood. She went instead with Clifford to Youthwaite. He could occasionally go out now in the car and had got a strong young man as chauffeur who would help him out of the car if need be. He particularly wanted to see his godfather, Leslie Winter, who lived at Shipley Hall, not far from Youthwaite. Winter was an elderly gentleman now, wealthy, one of the wealthy coal-owners who had had their heyday in King Edward's time. King Edward had stayed more than once at Shipley for the shooting. It was a handsome old stucco hall, very elegantly appointed, for Winter was a bachelor and prided himself on his style. But the place was beset by collieries. Leslie Winter was attached to Clifford, but personally did not entertain a great respect for him because of the photographs in illustrated papers and the literature. The old man was a buck of the King Edward school who thought life was life and the scribbling fellows were something else. Towards Connie, the squire was always rather gallant. He thought her an attractive, demure maiden and rather wasted on Clifford, and it was a thousand pities she stood no chance of bringing forth an heir to Ragby. He himself had no heir. Connie wondered what he would say if he knew that Clifford's gamekeeper had been having intercourse with her and saying to her, them and come to the cottage one time. He would detest and despise her, for he had come almost to hate the shoving forward of the working classes. A man of her own class he would not mind, for Connie was gifted from nature with this appearance of demure, submissive maidenliness, and perhaps it was part of her nature. Winter called her dear child, and gave her a rather lovely miniature of an 18th-century lady, rather against her will. But Connie was preoccupied with her affair with the keeper. After all, Mr. Winter, who was really a gentleman and a man of the world, treated her as a person and a discriminating individual. He did not lump her together with all the rest of his female womanhood in his the and the... She did not go to the wood that day, nor the next, nor the day following. She did not go so long as she felt or imagined she felt, the man waiting for her, wanting her. But the fourth day she was terribly unsettled and uneasy. She refused to go to the wood and open her thighs once more to the man. She thought of all the things she might do, drive to Sheffield, pay visits, and the thought of all these things was repellent. At last she decided to take a walk, not towards the wood, but in the opposite direction. She would go to Merhay, through the little iron gate in the other side of the park fence. It was a quiet, grey day of spring, almost warm. She walked on, unheeding, absorbed in thoughts she was not even conscious of. She was not really aware of anything outside her till she was startled by the loud barking of the dog at Merhay Farm. Merhay Farm! Its pastures ran up to Ragby Park Fence, so they were neighbors, but it was some time since Connie had called. "'Belle,' she said to the big white bull terrier, "'Belle, have you forgotten me?' Don't you know me? She was afraid of dogs, and Belle stood back and bellowed, and she wanted to pass through the farmyard onto the Warren path. Mrs. Flint appeared. She was a woman of Constance's own age, had been a schoolteacher, but 
Connie suspected her of being rather a false little thing. Why, it's Lady Chatley. Why, and Mrs. Flint's eyes glowed again, and she flushed like a young girl. Bell! Bell! Why, barking at Lady Chatterley. Bell! Be quiet! She darted forward and slashed at the dog with a white cloth she held in her hand, then came forward to Connie. She used to know me, said Connie, shaking hands. The Flints were Chatterley tenants. Of course she knows your ladyship. She's just showing off, said Mrs. Flint, glowing and looking up with a sort of flushed confusion. But it's so long since she's seen you. I do hope you are better. Yes, thanks. I'm all right. We've hardly seen you all winter. Will you come in and look at the baby? Well, Connie hesitated, just for a minute. Mrs. Flint flew wildly in to tidy up, and Connie came slowly after her, hesitating in the rather dark kitchen where the kettle was boiling by the fire. Back came Mrs. Flint. I do hope you'll excuse me, she said. Will you come in here? They went into the living room, where a baby was sitting on the rag hearth rug, and the table was roughly set for tea. A young servant girl backed down the passage. "'shy and awkward. "'The baby was a perky little thing of about a year, "'with red hair like its father "'and cheeky, pale blue eyes. "'It was a girl, and not to be daunted. "'It sat among cushions "'and was surrounded with rag dolls "'and other toys in modern excess. "'Why, what a dear she is,' said Connie, "'and how she has grown! "'A big girl, a big girl! Girl, She had given it a shawl when it was born, and celluloid ducks for Christmas. There, Josephine, who's that come to see you? Who's this, Josephine? Lady Chatley. You know Lady Chatley, don't you? The queer, pert little mite gazed cheekily at Connie. Ladyships were still all the same to her. Come, will you come to me, said Connie to the baby. The baby didn't care one way or another, so Connie picked her up and held her in her lap. How warm and lovely it was to hold a child in one's lap, and the soft little arms, the unconscious cheeky little legs. I was just having a rough cup of tea all by myself. Luke's gone to market so I can have it when I like. Would you care for a cup, Lady Chatterley? I don't suppose it's what you're used to, but if you would... Connie would, though she didn't want to be reminded of what she was used to. There was a great relaying of the table and the best cups brought and the best teapot. If only you wouldn't take any trouble, said Connie. But if Mrs. Flint took no trouble, where was the fun? So Connie played with the child and was amused by its little female dauntlessness and got a deep, voluptuous pleasure out of its soft, young warmth. Young life. And so fearless, so fearless, because so defenseless. All the other people, so narrow with fear. She had a cup of tea, which was rather strong, and very good bread and butter, and bottled damsons. Mrs. Flint flushed and glowed and bridled with excitement as if Connie were some gallant knight. And they had a real female chat, and both of them enjoyed it. It's a poor little tea, though, said Mrs. Flint. It's much nicer than at home, said Connie truthfully. Oh, said Mrs. Flint, not believing, of course. But at last Connie rose. I must go, she said. My husband has no idea where I am. He'll be wondering all kinds of things. He'll never think you're here, laughed Mrs. Flint excitedly. He'll be sending the crier round. Goodbye, Josephine, said Connie, kissing the baby and ruffling its red, wispy hair. Mrs. Flint insisted on opening the locked and barred front door. Connie emerged in the farm's little front garden, shut in by a privet hedge. There were two rows 
of auriculas by the path, very velvety and rich. Lovely auriculas, said Connie. Recklesses, as Luke calls them, laughed Mrs. Flint. Have some. And she eagerly picked the velvet and primrose flowers. Enough, enough, said Connie. They came to the little garden gate. Which way were you going, asked Mrs. Flint. By the warren. Let me see. Oh, yes, the cows are in the gin close, but they're not up yet. But the gate's locked. You'll have to climb. I can climb, said Connie. Perhaps I can just go down the close with you. They went down the poor rabbit-bitten pasture. Birds were whistling in wild evening triumph in the wood. A man was calling up the last cows which trailed slowly over the path-worn pasture. They're late milking tonight, said Mrs. Flint severely. They know Luke won't be back till after dark. They came to the fence, beyond which the young fir wood bristled dense. There was a little gate, but it was locked. In the grass on the inside stood a bottle, empty. There's the keeper's empty bottle for his milk, explained Mrs. Flint. We bring it as far as here for him, and then he fetches it for himself. When, said Connie. Oh, any time he's around, often in the morning. Well, goodbye, Lady Chatley, and do come again. It was so lovely having you. Connie climbed the fence into the narrow path between the dense, bristling young firs. Mrs. Flint went running back across the pasture in a sunbonnet because she was really a schoolteacher. Constance didn't like this dense new part of the wood. It seemed gruesome and choking. She hurried on with her head down, thinking of the Flint's baby. It was a dear little thing, but it would be a bit bow-legged like its father. It showed already. But perhaps it would grow out of it. How warm and fulfilling somehow to have a baby, and how Mrs. Flint had showed it off. She had something anyhow that Connie hadn't got, and apparently couldn't have. Yes, Mrs. Flint had flaunted her motherhood, and Connie had been just a bit, just a bit jealous. She couldn't help it. She started out of her muse and gave a little cry of fear. A man was there. It was the keeper. He stood in the path like Balaam's ass barring her way. How this, he said in surprise... "'How did you come?' she panted. "'How did you? Have you been to the hut?' "'No, no, I went to Merhe.' He looked at her curiously, searchingly, and she hung her head a little guiltily. "'And were you going to the hut now?' he asked rather sternly. "'No, I mustn't. I stayed at Merhe. No one knows where I am. It's late. I've got to run.' "'Giving me the slip-like,' he said, with a faint, ironic smile. "'No, no, not that. Only, why, what else?' he said. And he stepped up to her and put his arms around her. She felt the front of his body terribly near to her and alive. "'Oh, not now, not now,' she cried, trying to push him away. "'Why not? It's only six o'clock. You've got half an hour. "'Nay, nay, I want you.' He held her fast, and she felt his urgency. Her old instinct was to fight for her freedom, but something else in her was strange and inert and heavy. His body was urgent against her, and she hadn't the heart any more to fight. He looked around. Come, come here, through here, he said, looking penetratingly into the dense fir trees that were young and not more than half-grown. He looked back at her. She saw his eyes, tense and brilliant, fierce, not loving. But her will had left her. A strange weight was on her limbs. She was giving way. She was giving up. 
He led her through the wall of prickly trees that were difficult to come through to a place where was a little space and a pile of dead boughs. He threw one or two dry ones down, put his coat and waistcoat over them, and she had to lie down there under the boughs of the tree like an animal, while he waited standing there in his shirt and breeches, watching her with haunted eyes. But still he was provident. He made her lie properly, properly. Yet he broke the band of her underclothes, for she did not help him, only lay inert. He too had bared the front part of his body, and she felt his naked flesh against her as he came into her. For a moment he was still inside her, turgid there, and quivering. Then, as he began to move, in the sudden helpless orgasm there awoke in her new strange thrills rippling inside her, rippling, rippling, rippling like a flapping overlapping of soft flames, soft as feathers, running to points of brilliance, exquisite, exquisite, and melting her all molten inside. It was like bells rippling up and up to a culmination. She lay unconscious of the wild little cries she uttered at the last, but it was over too soon, too soon, and she could no longer force her own conclusion with her own activity. This was different. Different. She could do nothing. She could no longer harden and grip for her own satisfaction upon him. She could only wait, wait and moan in spirit as she felt him withdrawing, withdrawing and contracting, coming to the terrible moment when he would slip out of her and be gone. Whilst all her womb was open and soft and softly clamoring like a sea anemone under the tide, clamoring for him to come in again and make a fulfillment for her. She clung to him unconscious, in passion, and he never quite slipped from her, and she felt the soft bud of him within her stirring, and strange rhythms flushing up into her with a strange rhythmic growing motion, swelling and swelling till it filled all her cleaving consciousness, and then began again the unspeakable motion that was not really motion but pure deepening whirlpools of sensation swirling deeper and deeper through all her tissue and consciousness till she was one perfect concentric fluid of feeling, and she lay there crying an unconscious, inarticulate cries. The voice out of the utmost night the life. The man heard it beneath him with a kind of awe as his life sprang out into her. And as it subsided, he subsided too and lay utterly still, unknowing, while her grip on him slowly relaxed and she lay inert. And they lay and knew nothing, not even of each other, both lost till at last he began to rouse and became aware of his defenseless nakedness, and she was aware that his body was loosening its clasp on her. He was coming apart, but in her breast she felt she could not bear him to leave her uncovered. He must cover her now forever. But he drew away at last and kissed her and covered her over, and began to cover himself. She lay looking up to the boughs of the tree, unable as yet to move. He stood and fastened up his breeches, looking round. All was dense and silent, save for the odd dog that lay with its paws against its nose. He sat down again on the brushwood and took Connie's hand in silence. She turned and looked at him. We came off together that time, he said. She did not answer. It's good when it's like that. Most folks live their lives through and they never know it, he said, speaking rather dreamily. 
She looked into his brooding face. Do they, she said? Are you glad? He looked back into her eyes. Glad, he said. Aye, but never mind. He did not want her to talk, and he bent over and kissed her, and she felt so he must kiss her forever. At last she sat up. Don't people often come off together, she asked with naive curiosity. A good many of them never. You can see by the raw look of them. He spoke unwittingly, regretting he had begun. Have you come off like that with other women? He looked at her, amused. I don't know, he said. I don't know. And she knew he would never tell her anything he didn't want to tell her. She watched his face, and the passion for him moved in her bowels. She resisted it as far as she could, for it was the loss of herself to herself. He put on his waistcoat and his coat and pushed away through to the path again. The last level rays of the sun touched the wood. I won't come with you, he said. Better not. She looked at him wistfully before she turned. His dog was waiting so anxiously for him to go, and he seemed to have nothing whatever to say, nothing left. Connie went slowly home, realizing the depth of the other thing in her. Another self was alive in her, burning molten and soft in her womb and bowels, and with this self she adored him. She adored him till her knees were weak as she walked. In her womb and bowels she was flowing and alive now and vulnerable, and helpless in adoration of him as the most naive woman. It feels like a child, she said to herself. It feels like a child in me. And so it did, as if her womb, that had always been shut, had opened and filled with new life. Almost a burden, yet lovely. If I had a child, she thought to herself, if I had him inside me as a and her limbs turned molten at the thought, and she realized the immense difference between having a child to one's self and having a child to a man with whom one's bowels yearned towards. The former seemed, in a sense, ordinary, but to have a child to a man whom one adored in one's bowels and one's womb, it made her feel she was very different from her old self, and as if she was sinking deep, deep to the center of all womanhood and the sleep of creation. It was not the passion that was new to her. It was the yearning adoration. She knew she had always feared it, for it left her helpless she feared it still, lest if she adored him too much, then she would lose herself, become effaced. And she did not want to be effaced, a slave like a savage woman. She must not become a slave. She feared her adoration, yet she would not at once fight against it. She knew she could fight it. She had a devil of self-will in her breast that could have fought the full, soft, heaving adoration of her womb and crushed it. She could even do it now, or she thought so, and she could then take up her passion with her own will. Ah, yes, to be passionate, like a bacchanet, like a bacchanal fleeing through the woods, to call on Ayakos, the bright phallus, that had no independent personality behind it, but was pure God-servant to the woman. The man, the individual, let him not dare intrude. But he was a temple servant, the bearer and keeper of the bright fellows, her own. 
So, in the flux of new awakening, the old hard passion flamed in her for a time, and the man dwindled to a contemptible object, the mere phallus-bearer, to be torn to pieces when his service was performed. She felt the force of the bake in her limbs and her body, the woman gleaming and rapid, beating down the male. But while she felt this, her heart was heavy. She did not want it. It was known and barren, birthless. The adoration was her treasure. It was so fathomless, so soft, so deep, and so unknown. No, no, she would give up her hard, bright female power. She was weary of it, stiffened with it. She would sink in the new bath of life, in the depths of her womb and her bowels that sang the voiceless song of adoration. It was early yet to begin to fear the man. I walked over by Merhay, and I had tea with Mrs. Flint, she said to Clifford. I wanted to see the baby. It's so adorable, with hair like red cobwebs. Such a dear. Mr. Flint had gone to market, so she and I and the baby had tea together. Did you wonder where I was? Well, I wondered, but I guessed you had dropped in somewhere to tea, said Clifford jealously. With a sort of second sight, he sensed something new in her, something to him quite incomprehensible, but he ascribed it to the baby. He thought that all that ailed Connie was that she did not have a baby, automatically bring one forth, so to speak. I saw you go across the park to the Iron Gate, my lady, said Mrs. Bolton, so I thought perhaps you'd called at the rectory. I nearly did. Then I turned towards Merhay instead. The eyes of the two women met. Mrs. Bolton's gray and bright and searching. Connie's blue and veiled and strangely beautiful. Mrs. Bolton was almost sure she had a lover. Yet how could it be and who could it be? Where was there a man? Oh, it's so good for you if you go out and see a bit of company sometimes, said Mrs. Bolton. I was saying to Sir Clifford, it would do her ladyship a world of good if she'd go out among people more. Yes, I'm glad I went, and such a quaint, dear, cheeky baby, Clifford, said Connie. It's got hair just like spiderwebs and bright orange, and the oddest cheekiest pale blue china eyes. Of course it's a girl, or it wouldn't be so bold, bolder than any little Sir Francis Drake. You're quite right, my lady, a regular little flint. They were always a forward, sandy-headed family, said Mrs. Bolton. Wouldn't you like to see it, Clifford? I've asked them to tea for you to see it. Who, he asked, "'looking at Connie in great uneasiness. "'Mrs. Flint and the baby next Monday. "'You can have them to tea up in your room,' he said. "'Why, don't you want to see the baby?' she cried. "'Oh, I'll see it, but I don't want to sit through a tea time with them.' "'Oh,' cried Connie, looking at him with wide-veiled eyes. "'She did not really see him,' He was somebody else. You can have a nice cozy tea up in your room, my lady, and Mrs. Flint will be more comfortable than if Sir Clifford was there, said Mrs. Bolton. She was sure Connie had a lover, and something in her soul exulted. But who was he? Who was he? Perhaps Mrs. Flint would provide a clue. Connie would not take her bath, this evening, the sense of his flesh touching her, his very stickiness upon her, was dear to her. 
and in a sense, holy. Clifford was very uneasy. He would not let her go after dinner, and she had wanted so much to be alone. She looked at him, but was curiously submissive. "'Shall we play a game, or shall I read to you, or what shall it be?' he asked uneasily. "'You read to me,' said Connie. "'What shall I read, verse or prose, or drama?' "'Read Racine,' she said. "'It had been one of his stunts in the past, "'to read Racine in the real French grand manner, "'but he was rusty now, and a little self-conscious.' He really preferred the loudspeaker. But Connie was sewing, sewing a little frock of primrose silk cut out of one of her dresses for Mrs. Flint's baby. Between coming home and dinner she had cut it out, and she sat in the soft, quiescent rapture of herself sewing, while the noise of the reading went on. Inside herself she could feel the humming of passion like the after-humming of deep bells. Clifford said something to her about the Racine. She caught the sense after the words had gone. Yes, yes, she said, looking up at him. It is splendid. Again he was frightened at the deep blue blaze of her eyes and of her soft stillness sitting there. She had never been so utterly soft and still. She fascinated him helplessly, as if some perfume about her intoxicated him. So he went on helplessly with his reading, and the throaty sound of the French was like the wind in the chimneys to her. Of the Racine she heard not one syllable. She was gone in her own soft rapture, like a forest softening with the dim, glad moan of spring, moving into bud. She could feel in the same world with her the man, the nameless man, moving on beautiful feet, beautiful in the phallic mystery. And in herself, in all her veins, she felt him and his child. His child was in all her veins like a twilight. For hands she hath none, nor eyes, nor feet, nor golden treasure of hair. She was like a forest, like the dark interlacing of the oak wood, humming inaudibly with myriad unfolding buds. Meanwhile the birds of desire were asleep in the vast interlaced intricacy of her body. But Clifford's voice went on, clapping and gurgling with unusual sounds. How extraordinary it was, how extraordinary he was, bent there over the book, queer and rapacious and civilized, with broad shoulders and no real legs. What a strange creature with the sharp, cold, inflexible will of some bird, and no warmth, no warmth at all. One of those creatures of the afterwards that have no soul, but an extra alert will, cold will. She shuddered a little, afraid of him, but then the soft, warm flame of life was stronger than he, and the real things were hidden from him. The reading finished. She was startled. She looked up, and was more startled still to see Clifford watching her with pale, uncanny eyes like hate. "'Thank you so much. You do read Racine beautifully,' she said softly." Almost as beautifully as you listened to him, he said cruelly. What are you making, he asked. I'm making a child's dress for Mrs. Flint's baby. He turned away. A child, a child, that was all her obsession. After all, he said in a declamatory voice, one gets all one wants out of Racine, emotions that are 
ordered and given shape are more important than disorderly emotions. She watched him with wide, vague, veiled eyes. Yes, I'm sure they are, she said. The modern world has only vulgarized emotion by letting it loose. What we need is classic control. Yes, she said slowly, thinking of him listening with vacant face to the emotional idiocy of the radio. People pretend to have emotions and they really feel nothing. I suppose that is being romantic. Exactly, he said. As a matter of fact, he was tired. This evening had tired him. He would rather have been with his technical books or his pit manager or listening in to the radio. Mrs. Bolton came in with two glasses of malted milk for Clifford to make him sleep and for Connie to fatten her again. It was a regular nightcap she had introduced. Connie was glad to go when she had drunk her glass and thankful she needn't help Clifford to bed. She took his glass and put it on the tray, then took the tray to leave it outside. Good night, Clifford. Do sleep well. The Racine gets into one like a dream. Good night. She had drifted to the door. She was going without kissing him good night. He watched her with sharp, cold eyes. So... She did not even kiss him good night after he had spent an evening reading to her. Such depths of callousness in her, even if the kiss was but a formality, it was on such formalities that life depends. She was a Bolshevik, really. Her instincts were Bolshevistic. He gazed coldly and angrily at the door whence she had gone. He gazed coldly and angrily at the door whence she had gone. Anger. And again the dread of the night came on him. He was a network of nerves, and he was not braced up to work and so full of energy, or when he was not listening in and so utterly neuter. Then he was haunted by anxiety and a sense of dangerous impending void. He was afraid. And Connie could keep the fear off him if she would. But it was obvious she wouldn't. She wouldn't. She was callous, cold and callous to all that he did for her. He gave up his life for her, and she was callous to him. She only wanted her own way. The lady loves her will. Now it was a baby she was obsessed by, just so that it should be her own, all her own and not his. Clifford was so healthy, considering. He looked so well and ruddy in the face. His shoulders were broad and strong, his chest deep. He had put on flesh, and yet at the same time he was afraid of death. A terrible hollow seemed to menace him somewhere, somehow, a void, and into this void his energy would collapse. Energyless, he felt at times he was dead, really dead. So his rather prominent pale eyes had a queer look, furtive and yet a little cruel, so cold, and at the same time almost impudent. It was a very odd look, this look of impudence, as if he were triumphing over life in spite of life. Who knoweth the mysteries of the will, for it can triumph even against the angels. But his dread was the nights when he could not sleep. Then it was awful indeed when annihilation pressed in on him on every side. Then it was ghastly to exist without having any life. Lifeless in the night to exist. 
but now he could ring for Mrs. Bolton, and she would always come. That was a great comfort. She would come in her dressing gown with her hair in a plait down her back, curiously girlish and dim, though the brown plait was streaked with gray. And she would make him coffee or chamomile tea, and she would play chess or piquette with him. She had a woman's queer faculty of playing even chess well enough when she was three parts asleep, well enough to make her worth beating. So in the silent intimacy of the night, they sat, or she sat, and he lay on the bed with the reading lamp shedding its solitary light on them. She almost gone in sleep, he almost gone in a sort of fear, and they played, played together, Then they had a cup of coffee and a biscuit together, hardly speaking in the silence of night, but being a reassurance to one another. And this night she was wondering who Lady Chatterley's lover was. And she was thinking of her own Ted, so long dead yet, for her never quite dead. And when she thought of him, the old, old grudge against the world rose up, but especially against the masters, that they had killed him. They had not really killed him, yet to her, emotionally, they had. And somewhere deep in herself because of it, she was a nihilist, and really anarchic. In her half-sleep, Thoughts of her Ted and thoughts of Lady Chatterley's unknown lover commingled, and then she felt she shared with the other woman a great grudge against Sir Clifford and all he stood for. At the same time, she was playing piquette with him, and they were gambling sixpences, and it was a source of satisfaction to be playing piquette with a baronet and even losing sixpences to him. When they played cards, they always gambled. It made him forget himself. And he usually won. Tonight, too, he was winning, so he would not go to sleep till the first dawn appeared. Luckily, it began to appear at half-past four or thereabouts. Connie was in bed and fast asleep all this time. "'but the keeper, too, could not rest. "'He had closed the coops and made his round of the wood, "'then gone home and eaten supper. "'But he did not go to bed. "'Instead, he sat by the fire and thought. "'He thought of his boyhood in Teversal "'and of his five or six years of married life. "'He thought of his wife, and always bitterly.' She had seemed so brutal. But he had not seen her now since 1915, in the spring when he joined up. Yet there she was, not three miles away, and more brutal than ever. He hoped never to see her again while he lived. He thought of his life abroad as a soldier. India, Egypt, Then India again, the blind, thoughtless life with the horses, the colonel who had loved him and whom he had loved, the several years that he had been an officer, a lieutenant with a very fair chance of being a captain. Then the death of the colonel from pneumonia and his own narrow escape from death, his damaged health, his deep restlessness, his leaving the army and coming back to England, to be a working man again. He was temporizing with life. He had thought he would be safe, at least for a time in this wood. There was no shooting as yet. He had to rear the pheasants. He would have no guns to serve. He would be alone and apart from life, which was all he wanted. He had to have some sort of a background, and this was his native place. 
There was even his mother, though she had never meant very much to him. And he could go on in life, existing from day to day, without connection and without hope. For he did not know what to do with himself. He did not know what to do with himself, since he had been an officer for some years and had mixed among the other officers and civil servants with their wives and families. He had lost all ambition to get on. There was a toughness, a curious rubber-necked toughness and unlivingness about the middle and upper classes as he had known them, which just left him feeling cold and different from them. So he had come back to his own class to find there what he had forgotten during the absence of years, a pettiness and a vulgarity of manner extremely distasteful. He admitted now at last how important manner was. He admitted also how important it was even to pretend not to care about the halfpence and the small things of life. But among the common people there was no pretense. A penny more or less on the bacon was worse than a change in the gospel. He could not stand it. And again there was the wage squabble. Having lived among the owning classes, he knew the utter futility of expecting any solution of the wage squabble. There was no solution short of death. The only thing was not to care, not to care about the wages. Yet, if you were poor and wretched, you had to care. Anyhow, it was becoming the only thing they did care about, The care about money was like a great cancer, eating away the individuals of all classes. He refused to care about money. And what then? What did life offer apart from the care of money? Nothing. Yet he could live alone in the one satisfaction of being alone and raise pheasants to be shot ultimately by fat men after breakfast. It was futility, futility to the nth power. But why care? Why bother? And he had not cared nor bothered till now when this woman had come into his life. He was nearly ten years older than she and he was a thousand years older in experience, starting from the bottom. The connection between them was growing closer. He could see the day when it would catch up, and they would have to make a life together. For the bonds of love are ill too loose. And what then? What then? Must he start again with nothing to start on? Must he entangle this woman? Must he have the horrible broil with her lame husband? And also some sort of horrible broil with his own brutal wife who hated him. Misery. Lots of misery. And he was no longer young and merely buoyant. Neither was he the insouciant sort. Every bitterness and every ugliness would hurt him. And the woman. But even if they got clear of Sir Clifford and of his own wife, even if they got clear, what were they going to do? What was he himself going to do? What was he going to do with his life? For he must do something. He couldn't be a mere hanger-on on her money and his own very small pension. It was the insoluble. He could only think of going to America to try a new air. He disbelieved in the dollar utterly, but perhaps, perhaps there was something else. He could not rest nor even go to bed. After sitting in a stupor of bitter thoughts until midnight, he got suddenly from his chair and reached for his coat and gun. Come on, lass, he said to the dog. 
We're best outside. It was a starry night, but moonless. He went on a slow, scrupulous, soft-stepping and stealthy round. The only thing he had to contend with was the colliers setting snares for rabbits, particularly the Staxgate colliers, on the Marehay side. But it was breeding season, and even colliers respected it a little. Nevertheless, the stealthy beating of the round in search of poachers soothed his nerves and took his mind off his thoughts. But when he had done his slow, cautious beating of his bounds, it was nearly a five-mile walk. He was tired. He went to the top of the knoll and looked out. There was no sound save the noise, the faint, the faint, shuffling noise from the stack-skate colliery that never ceased working. And there were hardly any lights, save the brilliant electric rose at the works. The world lay darkly and fumily sleeping. It was half-past two. And even in its sleep it was an uneasy, cruel world, stirring with the noise of a train or some great lorry on the road, and flashing with some rosy lightning flash from the furnaces. It was a world of iron and coal, the cruelty of iron and the smoke of coal, and the endless, endless greed that drove it all. Only greed, greed stirring in its sleep. It was cold and he was coughing. A fine, cold draft blew over the knoll. He thought of the woman. Now he would have given all he had or ever might have to hold her warm in his arms, both of them wrapped in one blanket, and sleep. All hopes of eternity and all gain from the past he would have given to have her there, to be wrapped warm with him in one blanket and sleep, only sleep. It seemed the sleep with the woman in his arms was the only necessity. He went to the hut and wrapped himself in the blanket and lay on the floor to sleep, but he could not. He was cold, and besides, he felt cruelly his own unfinished nature. He felt his own unfinished condition of aloneness cruelly. He wanted her to touch her, to hold her fast against him in one moment of completeness and sleep. He got up again and went out, towards the park gates this time, then slowly along the path towards the house. It was nearly four o'clock, still clear and cold, but no sign of dawn. He was used to the dark. He could see well. Slowly, slowly the great house drew him as a magnet. He wanted to be near her. It was not desire, not that. It was the cruel sense of unfinished aloneness that needed a silent woman folded in his arms. Perhaps he could find her. Perhaps he could even call her out to him or find some way into her, for the need was imperious. He slowly, silently climbed the incline to the hall. Then he came round the great trees at the top of the knoll, on to the drive, which made a grand sweep round a lozenge of grass in front of the entrance. He could barely see the two magnificent beeches which stood in this big level lozenge in front of the house, detaching themselves darkly in the dark air. There was the house low and long and obscure, with one light burning downstairs in Sir Clifford's room. But which room was she in? The woman who held the other end of the frail thread which drew him so mercilessly that he did not know. He went a little nearer, gun in hand, and stood motionless on the drive watching the house. 
Perhaps even now he could find her, come at her in some way. The house was not impregnable. He was as clever as burglars are. Why not come to her? He stood motionless, waiting while the dawn faintly and imperceptibly paled behind him. He saw the light in the house go out, but he did not see Mrs. Bolton come to the window and draw back the old curtain of dark blue silk and stand herself in the dark room looking out on the half-dark of the approaching day. Looking for the longed-for dawn, waiting, waiting for Clifford to be really reassured that it was daybreak. For when he was sure of daybreak, he would sleep almost at once. She stood blind with sleep at the window, waiting. And as she stood, she started and almost cried out, for there was a man out there on the drive, a black figure in the twilight. She woke up grayly and watched, but without making a sound to disturb Sir Clifford. The daylight began to rustle into the world, and the dark figure seemed to go smaller and more defined. She made out the gun and gaiters and baggy jacket. It would be Oliver Melors, the keeper. Yes, for there was the dog nosing around like a shadow and waiting for him. And what did the man want? Did he want to rouse the house? What was he standing there for, transfixed, looking up at the house like a lovesick male dog outside the house where the bitch is? Goodness. The knowledge went through Mrs. Bolton like a shot. He was Lady Chatterley's lover. He. He. To think of it, why, she, Ivy Bolton, had once been a tiny bit in love with him herself. When he was a lad of sixteen and she a woman of twenty-six, it was when she was studying, and he had helped her a lot with the anatomy and things she had had to learn. He'd been a clever boy, had a scholarship for the Sheffield Grammar School, and learned French and things, and then, after all, had become an overhead blacksmith shoeing horses, because... He was fond of horses, he said, but really because he was frightened to go out and face the world, only he'd never admit it. But he'd been a nice lad, a nice lad. Had helped her a lot, so clever at making things clear to you. He was quite as clever as Sir Clifford, and always one for the women. More with women than men, they said till he'd gone and married that Bertha Coots, as if to spite himself. Some people do marry to spite themselves because they're disappointed of something, and no wonder it had been a failure. For years he was gone, all the time of the war, and a lieutenant and all, quite the gentleman, really quite the gentleman, then to come back to Tevershall and go as a gamekeeper, Really, some people can't take their chances when they've got them. And taking broad Derbyshire again, like the worst, when she, Ivy Bolton, knew he spoke like any gentleman. Really. Well, well, so her ladyship had fallen for him. Well, her ladyship wasn't the first. There was something about him. But fancy... A Tevershall lad, born and bred, and she, her ladyship, in Ragby Hall. My word, that was a slap back at the high and mighty Chatterleys. But he, the keeper, as the day grew, had realized it's no good. It's no good trying to get rid of your own aloneness. You've got to stick to it all your life. Only at times, at times the gap will be filled in. At times. But you have to wait for the times. Accept your own aloneness and stick to it all your life. And then accept the times when the gap is filled in, when they come. 
but they've got to come. You can't force them. With a sudden snap, the bleeding desire that had drawn him after her broke. He had broken it because it must be so. There must be a coming together on both sides. And if she wasn't coming to him, he wouldn't track her down. He mustn't. He must go away till she came. He turned, slowly, ponderingly, accepting again the isolation. He knew it was better so. She must come to him. It was no use his trailing after her. No use. Mrs. Bolton saw him disappear, saw his dog run after him. Well, well, she said. He's the one man I never thought of, and the one man I might have thought of. He was nice to me when he was a lad, after I lost Ted. Well, well, whatever would he say if he knew and she glanced triumphantly at the already sleeping Clifford as she stepped softly from the room.